Hey, good morning, church. Uh, we're continuing our series in Simon Peter, the reed and the rock. Uh, this is a story of how Jesus took a man, Simon, who's a reed, someone who was easily blown about, hot and cold. He said things he shouldn't say. And he turned him into the rock, Peter, someone who was strong in the Lord, dependent, reliable. Uh, but how did he do it? Well, he did it through God's Holy Spirit working in him. And he did it through circumstances. Now, the circumstance that Simon Peter finds himself in today is in a prison, a pretty dark place. If you've ever spoken to someone who's been in prison, they don't usually come out telling you how wonderful it was. Uh, but prison actually has two aspects to it. So one is the aspect that you are shut in. You're in a confined space. You're probably with people that you wouldn't really choose to be with. But another aspect of being in prison is that you are shut out. You are shut out of society. You're kept away from your family. You're kept away from community. It's, you're not worthy to be in society at the moment. And for some of us, we might not have been in a physical prison, but Many of us have experienced that feeling of being trapped inside a sort of a, a, a prison of our own making, maybe. You know, maybe it's an addiction that we have that we feel trapped to. Maybe it's relationships that we feel shut out of. Maybe it's a financial situation that we just can't see any way out, that we are trapped. Now, often when you get to a place like that, you ask this question, why? God, why? Why am I in this place? How can I possibly get out? Why did you allow this? But you know, the real question we're asking when we say those things is, what is God really like? What is he really like? Does God care? Or is he indifferent to how I feel? Is God near or is he far away? Is he just watching, or is he taking an active role in our lives? Is God just, or is he in fact unjust? And probably the most important aspect as we work through Acts 12 is answering this question, what is God really like? And hopefully what we're gonna see is just through three things. One is that we're gonna see that God sees our prisons. And then we're going to hear that God hears our prayers. And finally, we will see that God acts in justice. But firstly, God sees our prisons. Let's just have a look at verses 1 to 3 again. It says this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So here we meet uh, Herod, Herod Agrippa. He was a descendant from Esau, so he was an Edomite. Uh, he was the grandson of Herod the Great, the same Herod the Great that killed all the babies in Jerusalem. He was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded. 
So this family, this lineage of this family, these guys are like the ultimate mafia family. Like, I'm surprised Netflix or Amazon Prime hasn't got this idea of this is the family and make a series about them. It would be like the ultimate binge-worthy thing. So what are they going to do? Because they have murder in their background. They have seizing the throne. They do it by all sort of calculating means. And because Herod was this kind of character, the Jews hated him. They hated Herod being on the throne. But Herod one day accidentally stumbles onto something that pleases the Jews and wins favor with the Jews. And that is that he has James, one of the 12 apostles, beheaded. That's what it means, by the sword. He was killed by the sword. He would have had his head chopped off. And we don't know why. We don't know what provoked Herod. Maybe it was these Christians were pricking his conscience or he, they were just getting under his skin and he decides to have James beheaded. We don't know why. But what he finds out is this is actually the Jews react and they like, they really like this idea. So Herod thinks to himself, well, well, how else can I get more favor with the Jews, right? Well, if I took out the leader of the church, Simon Peter, then they would like me even more. So that's exactly what he does. He arrests Peter with the intention of having him executed. But the problem is it's Passover. It's the time of unleavened bread, and you couldn't execute anyone during the Passover, which would have lasted about eight days. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read that passage, one question that comes to my mind is, why did James die and Peter didn't? Is that fair? Like, you can't come to the conclusion, well, Peter was a better Christian. Therefore, he actually got, got off the lights then. You can't, you can't come to that conclusion. You know, you ask the questions when you read books about missionaries, right? There these incredible stories where you read how God miraculously saves some missionaries from, from danger, life-threatening danger, and then... You, in the same book, you read stories how God allowed missionaries to be martyred, often in very violent ways. Why? Now, the first lesson we have to learn is that we are not guaranteed safety as a Christian. Right? The gospel and coming to know Jesus is not an insurance policy. You are entering a relationship. You are not buying insurance for a healthy, wealthy, and prosperous life. You know, if we have this thinking that, you know, if I, if I trust God and I believe in Him and I do my part and I'm a little bit good, then God owes it to me to keep me safe, look after me, let nothing bad happen, always keep me happy. That is not the gospel. So we're not guaranteed safety. But we have to answer the question, well, why does God allow this? What it comes down to is trusting in his character. Trusting that the judge of all earth will do right. I might not understand what right looks like, but I have to trust him. I have to come to that point where saying, God, you know best. You are sovereign over everything. And I trust you. The truth is that God allowed James to be killed. He allowed Herod to do that. But he also prevented Herod from harming Peter. 
In both those circumstances, in both those situations, God is in control. Now, I might not understand how he works out his purposes, but it does cause me to trust in his character. So God is good. He does see. He does care. And he is in control. God hears our prayers. Let's look at verse 5. This is what it says. So Peter was kept in prison. Pretty bleak. No hope at this point in time. And then you get this. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the, the key passage. In the whole verse, if you like underlining your Bibles, this is the verse you want to underline. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You know, the, the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said this. He said, the angel fetched Peter, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. You know, a lesson we learn in this is that God does not always answer immediately. And again, when it happens and we don't feel like God is answering immediately, we're tempted to ask, why God? Don't, don't you love me? Don't you care about me? Don't you see my situation? I need an answer from you now. You know, in this situation, like I said, Passover would have been eight days. So the church could have been praying for as long as eight days. Right? Imagine that feeling. You know that the intention is Herod's going to execute Peter at the end of Passover. So you pray on day one, Lord, deliver Peter. Nothing happens. You pray on day two, Lord, get Peter out of prison. Nothing happens. Day three, day four, day five, nothing happens. Day six, day seven, nothing happens. And then what we're going to read about on day eight, God steps in and he does the miraculous. But why? Why does he take so long? Why doesn't God work to my timeline? See, I think it's often that God tests us in what our attitude to prayer is. Because the truth of us, some of us only ever go to prayer when there's a crisis. We don't actually have a daily communion with him. We only ever call on him in crisis. Or we just treat prayer like the pokies, you know, like a slot machine. We, we put in a prayer, we pull the lever, we hope that we win, we might get some, we might not. That is not prayer. Prayer is this beautiful opportunity for us to draw closer to him, an opportunity for us to know him and trust him. You know, God does answer every single prayer you pray. But he answers it either yes, no, or wait. Wait. You know, I, I kind of liken it uh, in our family when we're sitting around the dinner table and my kids are telling me about what's happened to them at school. And I really hope that they do this. And kids, if you're listening, I hope you do this with your mom and dad. Like if you're facing something at school, tell your mom and dad about it. Dads love this kind of stuff. It's an opportunity for us to, to speak into their lives, to maybe give them some encouragement or give them some word of wisdom. And sometimes we get it wrong. Have grace for us kids. We don't always know everything. But there is this beautiful opportunity for us to get to know each other more. For my kids to know that when they face crisis, they can come to me. 
I'm there and I want, I want to know them. And sometimes what I have to say is not what they want to hear. Sometimes, like, you've got to go in and rescue the situation. I'm like, no, like, you need to do something like this. But it is this beautiful opportunity for us to get to know each other. But, you know, God does answer, and he answers in this miraculous ways. God is the God of the impossible. We can't do it. You know, the whole thing in this story is it's not just one miracle. There's a whole series of miracles taking place here. And, you know, miracles, they are they're natural in a sense that they happen in the natural world. But they're unnatural in the fact that it's stuff that normally doesn't happen or really shouldn't happen. And the third thing about miracles is they are supernatural in the sense that it takes a supernatural agent to make them happen. And in this case, the Lord sends an angel. He sends an angel. Now, Simon Peter, he had been in prison twice before. Herod, and he had got out miraculously twice before. So Herod had heard about this rumor. He goes, that's not happening under my watch. We're going to put him under maximum security, four squads of soldiers. We're going to make this place like Alcatraz. No one's getting out. So you would have had about 16 soldiers looking after this one guy, chained twice. There he is. And the first thing the angel does is when he arrives, he turns on the light. He himself is light. God provides the light. And the soldiers just keep sleeping. Actually, Simon Peter keeps on sleeping as well. <laughs> the angel has to actually wake him up. <laughs> Get out of bed. Time to go, Simon. I don't know about you, but parents, have you found this with your kids that sometimes you need to help them wake up in the morning? You turn on the light, you make a noise, nothing. Nothing. Until you get that whack in the ribs, guys, come on, time to get up. Except on school holidays. For some reason, kids find it quite easy to get up by themselves. Uh, but the angel had to wake Simon Peter up. Simon Peter is sleeping. The next day, he will be executed and have his head chopped off. And yet, he's sleeping. He's at peace. Why is, he, why is he at peace? I mean, this is the same Simon Peter. You go back just a little bit in the Gospels, and there's a story of Simon Peter and Jesus are in a boat, and a storm comes up, a big, raging storm. And this time, it's Jesus who's asleep. It's Jesus who's at peace. And Simon Peter's freaking out, and he tries to wake him up. Lord, don't you care? We're going to die. We're going to drown. This is the end. Simon Peter's become the rock. He's got that peace now. And he's asleep. The very thing that should keep us awake at night, it's not bothering him. He's sleeping. So how did he have this peace? Well, one, the believers were praying for him. Guys, can I say, if you're struggling and you're wrestling with stuff and you feel like you are in a prison, one of the best things you can do is ask people to pray for you, to pray for God's peace. If you're really struggling with sleep, ask people to pray for you. It will bring peace. But another thing that Peter was holding on to was a promise. It was a promise that Jesus made to him. Now, it's not the most exciting promise because Jesus said, Simon, when you're old, he said this in John 21, when you're old, you're going to go where you don't want to go. Basically, you're going to die a death by crucifixion when you're old. So Simon, Peter's now's not my time. 
Jesus has told me what's going to happen. I trust him. I rest in his promises. Now, these miracles did happen, right? First, the angel comes on, turns on the lights, but then removes the chains. Now, have you ever, what sound does a chain make as it falls down on a hard floor? Kids, help me out here. What sound does a chain make? Cling, clang, right? There's, there's so much going on here. Lights are flashing, chains are crashing, the doors are opening, the Roman guards are still snoring. It seems like one of those crazy dreams you have when you've eaten too much pizza, right? You're like, what's going on? And you can't blame Simon Peter for thinking, oh my goodness, this is a dream. Is this a dream? Am I awake? Am I having a vision? And suddenly he finds himself outside and he goes, this is real. This is real. He comes to himself. Now, what we see there is that miracles are no substitution for action on our part. If you notice, the angel did everything that was needed, but not one thing more. Not one thing more. Actually, he commanded Simon Peter to obey a lot of things. Simon Peter, get up. Simon Peter, put on your sandals. Simon Peter, put on your cloak. Simon Peter, follow me. Simon had to do his part. You know, Simon Peter's learning, he's learning. God alone, God alone can do the extraordinary, the extraordinary. He alone can do the miraculous, but he does call his people to do the ordinary, to be faithful with the ordinary and to follow him. You know, when Peter comes to himself, it says he comes to himself like, wow, that just happened, that's, that's amazing. He notices the angel's gone, job done. He's back on his own. Angel doesn't tell him where to go. Peter just uses his common sense and goes, well, I reckon I've got to go and find Mary. That's probably where the believers are. They should be praying. Now, here's just a reminder. Why were the believers in Mary's house? They were praying. They gathered to pray, right? So a whole bunch of people come together to pray. It says that they were praying earnestly, right? Then it says that they possibly were praying for quite a while, like the length of Passover, up to a week. And they were specifically praying for Simon Peter's deliverance. Now, what happens is almost like this comedy sketch. It's almost like one of those funny comedy shows where someone rocks up and, well, you shouldn't be here. I mean, here's the crazy thing, right? God could get Simon Peter out of prison, but Simon Peter can't get himself into a prayer meeting. Right? Rhoda, the servant girl, she comes along, she answers the door, she hears Simon Peter's voice through the gate, she freaks out, she runs to tell the others, and you know what they tell her? You're nuts. You're out of your mind, girl. They've been praying for Simon Peter to be released. The very thing that they've been praying for actually comes to their door, and they don't believe. I mean... You can almost sense the unbelief in the room, right? You know, they gathered because they thought God could answer prayer. They had seen him answer prayer. But when the answer came to the door, they didn't believe. Guys, this can be, this can be true of me. And this can be true, I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting, where we're praying, but the truth is we don't really believe. We don't really believe. We just, we're just kind of doing our duty, doing our thing, you know, maybe a bit of wishful thinking, but we don't really believe. But here is the amazing thing. 
Here is the amazing thing, that God graciously answers that prayer even with the weakest of faith. Faith as small as a mustard seed. God actually honors and he answers. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So God does hear our prayers. Even the feeblest prayers, he hears. And the third thing, God acts in justice. I don't know about you, but do you have that feeling when you turn on the TV, you open a news app, you open the newspaper, and you read about what's going on in the world, that there's something in your heart that just feels sick. You feel frustrated. You feel like, God, what's happening in the world? How much longer do these things have to keep going on? It just seems that people get away with doing the most horrible things. Now, Herod, if you look at his life up until this point, it looked like he was getting away with doing dreadful things, right? But here's the thing with God. God may not settle his accounts by next Friday. But one day, a day will come when he will settle his accounts. He has determined a day already on which that will happen. Guys, and because that's true, because that's true, we believe that. Do you know what it means for us? Is that we don't have to fear what wicked people will do. We don't have to fear that they will get away with it. Because we know that they won't. That on that day, the Lord will judge rightly. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read about the soldiers in the story, I actually feel sorry for them, right? I mean, they were just doing their job, and the truth is they stood no chance of keeping Simon Peter in prison. I mean, it didn't matter whether there were 16 or 16,000. God was going to get Simon Peter out of that prison. But Herod comes along, he didn't have to execute them. He didn't have to kill them. But he did it anyway. It's just the kind of guy he was. You don't obey me, I've got power, I'll take your life. And I wonder how Simon Peter thought, knowing what would have happened, just thinking, wow, people died because I was able to get out? How much, how much more blood needs to be spilt by this guy called Herod. You know, the truth is that God gives us an incredible amount of freedom. He gives us freedom to, to love one another, to serve one another, to bless one another. But he also gives us freedom to hurt each other, to lie to one another, to cause suffering. And the Lord does see everything. He does see everything. And he says, on the day of judgment, it will be no more. I will bring an end to everything wicked. But we could say, well, what about now, God? What about now? Why don't you do something now? So let's explore that for a little bit, right? Would you want God to deal with every sin, every vice, every crime immediately? Just think about that for a minute. Would you want God to do that? You see, there's a problem in that because you have to include yourself. You know, maybe if God was dealing with others that way, that would be great. 
You know, if, if he dealt with that person that way, all for it, God, good on your judgment. But for me, mercy, mercy, I'm different. See, the truth is, the truth is, we are part of the problem too. We are part of the problem. You know, right now, with all the wars that are going on in the world, people ask me the question, why does God allow it? Why does God allow such terrible things to happen? But you know, a greater mystery is, why does God allow me to get away with the things that I do? Why does God allow me to do those things? You know, I might not do it on on the same level, the same amount of damage, because I don't have the position or the power to do it, but you scale that down, and the truth is, my words, my actions, I, I still hurt people. I still cause people to suffer. I have left a mark on this world, and not all of it's for the better. There's a lot of stuff that I've done that isn't right. So honestly, do we want God to deal, deal with, with, with sin immediately? And judge it immediately? Well, if we say yes, then there's probably not going to be a lot of us here next Sunday, including me. You know, but God in his wisdom, in his wisdom, he says he's not going to act that way. But that doesn't mean he won't judge. He's just set aside a day for judgment. You know, Herod, Herod thought he was getting away with it. Herod thought he could do whatever he wanted. I define good and evil for myself. I have absolute power and many people think that way too. They think they could get away with it. There's no thought of judgment. We get to define good and evil for ourselves. We get to live how we want. Many people think that way. Uh, the people in Tyre and Sidon, they depended upon the Jews for food, right? So they depended upon Herod for food. And at some point in time, we don't know why, but they had displeased Herod and kind of made him angry. And now they were in danger of losing their food. Their food supply was going to be cut off. So it says they persuaded Blastus. Now, that probably means that they bribed him. Right? How they're like, Blastus, hey, you've you've got some, you know Herod, right? Like, can you use your power and cloud? He has a little bit in a brown envelope. You know, just go and chat to him. Tell him it's a good idea to, to talk to us. And he does. He goes, he goes to Herod uh, and he says, listen, um, you know, you, I think you should meet with this delegation. I think this would be a great opportunity for you, Herod, to go out and, you know, show your authority, show your power. Uh, and it's actually recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus who notes this event. And it says that on that day, Herod came out wearing this long silver garment, nice and shiny. And as he sat on his throne, right? And the people of Tyre, so they, they flattered his ego. They were there to please him. They didn't really mean it, but they said all these wonderful things about him, and they played to Herod's ego. And they said, Herod, you're a god. You've got the voice of a god. And you know what? Herod loved it. He loved it. He thought it was great. He didn't correct them. He actually just welcomed it all. But really, you know what that's doing? That's idolatry. When we take a man, a mere man, and we put them ahead of God, and we say that they are God, that is idolatry. And this is what God says in Isaiah. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. And Josephus tells us, 
he says that Herod was struck down with something that day. And it looked like it was something in his bowels, that it was essentially worms that were inside, eating him from the inside. And it says he, he died five days later in A.D. 44. And historical fact. You know, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they needed food, right? Basic thing. But they were prepared to pay a high price to get that food. They were prepared to give away their integrity, give away who they were so that they could get it. They resorted to, to flattery to try and get it. And it's true. You look around, people are still trying to do that. The world operates in a way where, where people live for praise and pleasure. Herod lived for the praise. And, and the people of Tyre and Sidon, they lived for pleasure, and they thought we can work this out. You know, the, the world lives on the physical. We only need food. We will do anything we can to get food, but ignores the spiritual. You know, our, our culture sends us this message the whole time of you need to get, you need to get more, you need to have more, you need to do more holidays. And actually, if it means using people to get what you want, that's okay too. You know, the, the early church, they didn't have any political connections. They had no blastus that they could go to and say, hey, can you appeal to the king? They had no friends in high places. But here's the difference. They knew not just the king, but they knew the king of kings. And they could go to him by prayer. And they knew that God's throne is much greater than Herod's throne. You see, in the beginning of Acts 12, you look at those first few verses, you see Herod is in control. Herod is calling the shots. And actually, it seems like the church is losing, its bat losing the battle. They're losing leaders. It's the end. But then you get to, to the end of Acts chapter 12, and you see it's, it's actually Herod who's dead. And the church is alive and thriving. God sees our prisons. It says this in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Right, what he intended for harm, actually God brings about for good. You know, that's been true throughout the centuries. Throughout the centuries, there's been these attempts time and time again to destroy the church, to stop the movement of Christianity. One of my favorite stories in this line is, is by uh, Voltaire, who was a French philosopher in the 1700s. And Voltaire had this absolute disdain for Christianity. He hated it. Every letter he wrote to friends, he signed off like this. Crush the infamy, the Christian religion. And he had lots of support. Lots of people thought he was fantastic. They agreed with him. They thought this was a good move. This is what he had to say about the Bible. He said, the Bible, that is what fools have written what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. Get this. In 1776, this is what he said. 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth. This is where God has a sense of humor, right? Because not 100 years later, but 50 years later, it just so happened that this little society called the Evangelical Society of Geneva, who published Bibles, managed to acquire Voltaire's house. 
And in the very house where Voltaire said there will not be a Bible in a hundred years from my day, they used it as a storehouse for thousands of Bibles. And in his house, he had a little printing press that he used to print all his stuff against Christianity. They used the same printing press to print Bibles. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? But the word of God increased and multiplied. You know, for the early church, there was this place in Caesarea Philippi called the Gates of Hell. Now, it was the Roman place. This is what it looked like. It was the grandeur of Rome. All power, pomp, and might was displayed in the gates of hell. And the church, they had nothing. They had no money. They had no political power. And they looked at this might of Rome that was powerful. looked like nothing could stop it. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail. Not prevail. This is the gates of hell today. It's a ruin. It's a hole in the ground. The gates of hell will not prevail. Do you know what the church is doing today? The church is gathered worldwide. We are the church. The church is thriving. The church is still going. And by God's will, the church will increase and multiply. Amen. Some of you guys are allowed to say amen, even though we're in church. That is an awesome thing. Lord, let that be true of us. Let us be a generation that longs to see your word multiplied and increased in our lives and in this world. Lord, we trust you that you are in control. And whatever happens, Lord, we know that you're going to work it for good. How was the church able to do this? What was its secret? Well, the secret was the church was close to the Lord. Whenever you see the church going off track, it was because they moved far from the Lord. They were close to the Lord. It was a church that prayed and knew him. Uh, this is a quote I found this week, and I love it. If any of you come up to me, I'm going to quote it back at you, and this is what the advice I'm going to give you this week. This is what Alan Redpath said. He said, let us keep our chins up and our knees down. We're on the victory side. I love that, right? Let us keep our chins up and our knees down. We're on victory side. You know, the question that we come back to is, what is God like? Is God just? Yeah, absolutely, right there. Herod is an example of one day of God's justice. Wickedness will not go on forever. God will judge. He will put things right. Is God near or far? Yeah, he's right there. He's right there in the prison. He sees everything. Doesn't always answer in the way that we think he should, but he's right there. And the most important question we're asking, does he care? Does he care? Yeah, he cares a great deal. He cares a great deal. You know, Simon Peter gets to this point where he realizes he's, he's out of prison, and he says, now I know that God rescues. You know, as we think of communion, which we're going to take, that is what we're remembering. We're remembering what God is like, what he's done. God cares, and he rescues. He might not have rescued us from, from physical chains that bind us, but he's, he's rescued every single one of us who put a trust in him from spiritual chains of sin and shame. If we trust in him, he's, he's rescued us from it. 
Every one of us can say we're like Peter. We have a story to tell that he's rescued us out of prison. He's taken us out of that dark place. You know, God cares. He looked down on this world that was in a mess. It was broken. It was without hope. And he said, I will do something. I will do something. I will not just tell what the world it should do. No, I will go myself. And he came in the form of Jesus, his son. And Jesus himself took on the cross our sin. He rescued us from it. And he gave us his righteousness. You know, on that, that meal that Jesus took, he, he broke the bread. He literally ripped it apart. And he's saying, that's what's going to happen to me. My body is going to be ripped apart. It is going to, I'm going to be whipped and punished. But I want you to know that that actually represents what I'm doing for you. Because I love you. You know, when we ask the question, what is God like? He cared about me so much that he was, he was prepared to take the hit for me.